Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. This week, we have an interview for you, and our guests are Brian McLaren and the Reverend Dr. Penny Nixon. This is a wonderful conversation that Rajiv and Bonnie were able to have a couple weeks ago, and we are so excited to share it with you. So we're going to get right into it. If there's anything in the conversation that you want to know more about, check our show notes at irenicast.com slash 155. That's irenicast.com slash 155. That'll have links to everything they talk about. It'll also have links on how you can learn more about the work of Brian McLaren and the Reverend Dr. Penny Nixon. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's amazing episode. We're here at the Congregational Church of San Mateo in the office of the Reverend Dr. Penny Nixon, Senior Minister, with special guest Brian McLaren. It's a privilege to be with the two of you in the same space and to be out of our little bunkers and in the real world doing one of these episodes. Absolutely. And it's a a delight to hear you in conversation with each other. So um, what an honor for Irena Cast and for our listeners to have you both as guests we would, we just want to start from the very beginning to hear from each one of you. What is your Christian story? <laughs> where did you begin? What roads have you traveled that led you to where you are now? And maybe, uh, maybe we'll start with Brian's. It's your okay. Fantastic. Well, it's great to be with you guys, and so glad you're for this great podcast and what you're doing, and so happy to be with you. Uh, Penny, I uh, grew up fundamentalist in a little uh, Protestant sect called the Plymouth Brethren. My parent, you know, in in almost every fundamentalist sect, even though there are some really mean people, there are some really nice people too. And my parents were really nice people. They behaved better than their theology in many cases, <laughs> and and so I had a very loving upbringing. And I, you know, the things I'm grateful about from my background is, man, I learned the Bible by the time I was. 10 years old, I knew more than an awful lot of people I know with a lot of training. So I, I learned a lot. I, I ended up becoming an English major. And I think it's because I, I learned literary criticism and analysis indirectly through all of, all of my Bible study. But uh, uh, in my teenage years, I, I was pretty sure I was on my way out. I loved science and I thought evolution made so much sense. And I think it was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, I must have asked a question about evolution. And he said, oh, you have to make a choice. You either can believe in God or evolution. And it was like four more years and I'm out of here. (laughs) And I liked rock and roll. And now fundamentalists love rock and roll. But back then that was not good. And, uh, and obviously when you're a 14 year old boy and your, you know, hormones are coming alive, figuring out how you're going to be a sexual being in a religion. Back then it wasn't that you know, we just never talked about sex. It's just, you, you never, you wondered how all these babies ever came into being. So that was my background. Um, I, and then I ended up getting invited on this retreat and it was part, of, I didn't know it at the time, but it was part of something called the Jesus Movement in the 1970s. And then I had this kind of powerful spiritual experience and suddenly I'm with all these charismatics. And so for maybe the next 10 years, I ended up getting kind of a guided tour of every different kind of Christianity. I was around Catholic charismatics and Episcopal charismatics and hardcore Pentecostals. And uh, I was around a lot of shouting and yelling and hollering and hooting and some rolling on the floor and all kinds of stuff. And 
Uh, and then I got exposed to these hyper Calvinists. And so I really got around in those years. My plan was to be a college English teacher. And while I was teaching, uh, I was part of a little group that started a church, ended up becoming the pastor, and the rest is sort of brutal, tragic tale. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm. Many, many different roads you've traveled. Penny, how about you? So I guess it would be easiest to describe myself as a prenatal Christian. My mother had a conversion experience uh, while I was in the womb. And so- Must have rubbed off. I know, yeah. right? It rubbed off for sure. And so- and then when I was about six weeks old, I almost died, and she kind of gave me over to God, and the church prayed for me, and I didn't die, obviously, and so uh, that started out. And um, I was raised in New Hampshire in conservative Baptist, and the way to think about that is we thought the Southern Baptists were liberal, mm. so that that situates that for you. Right. But like Brian, I'm really grateful for the threads that I picked up. Mm. I've had to obviously deconstruct quite a bit of stuff. But I picked up this thread of love. I picked up this thread of the image of God in in every person. And somehow that just got, got to me at a cellular level, even as a child. I was a kind of a spiritual kid. And then I would say that I would, since then, I've, I've had a series of conversions that led me out of fundamentalism, led me out of evangelicalism, led me really to a more post-credal mm-hmm. kind of Christianity. And a lot of it was just my experiences and openness. Like you said, Brian, for you, it was science. For me, it began in kind of getting a hold of liberation theology. Mm, And um, that made a lot more sense to me. I took a trip to India and I saw poverty in a way that I had never seen it. Mm -hmm. And this whole personal salvation theology made no sense to me in that that environment. That I, I got at a deep level that that's not going to solve the systemic issues that were going on. Yeah. And then it was liberation theology, and then it was feminist theology, mm-hmm. and then it was uh, echo feminism, and then it was, uh, and then I came out as a lesbian, and then everything went to hell after that. <laughs> um, I went to heaven, but everything else went to hell. Um, and so, you know, that was, that's a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up, uh, being in South Africa and doing work during um, some of the height of the AIDS years in the Castro, which shaped my theology profoundly in terms of uh, body, in terms of hope, in terms of, you know, the suffering of humanity and and the withness of that divine presence in that and, and how to find joy in all that uh, really shaped me, I think spiritually and, and theologically. I don't mm-hmm. think I have a label for where I am today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've often say, you know, I believe less than I've ever believed, but my faith is probably deeper than it has ever been. Mm-hmm. Wow. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful indeed. And embedded in your responses, Penny, it sounded like an offer to do another episode with us. Yes. Sure, you bet. Your, so. your coming you out bet. story, which we'll definitely want to take you up on. Alrighty. It, uh, that'll yes. be important. Um, another little bit that of what you said, I love the phrase, and I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with a series of conversions, a series of conversions. So powerful. I mean, that's one of the issues with, for me, with evangelicalism. They only think things I was taught happen once, like resurrection. It happens all the time. Conversion happens again and again. 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, redemption, it's constant. Mm-hmm. So, and I agree, Brian, I like the, the thread also of the, of knowing the Bible. Yeah. So no matter who I'm with from a Christian tradition, I can arm wrestle you with the Bible any day. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. All right. Okay. So this next question is one of those that are kind of ridiculously unfair. This is a bunch of little questions all bundled into one big question. <laughs> so I'm going to read the whole thing. And then we'll 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 take one biblical approach, which is pick and choose, <laughs> <laughs> and w- whichever question seems to to spark the the biggest, go go with that one. Um, and 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 Brian, we'll we'll start with you. What does faith slash doubt relate to in the question of can I still be a Christian? What is faith? What is doubt? What is belief? And how does doubting belief impact faith? So let me go over all that again. Um, wow. How does faith doubt relate to the question of, can I still be Christian? What is faith and what is doubt? We'll go That's with great. that to start That's with. great. Well, you, you, you may know this or you may not, but so I am working on two books right now. Mm-hmm. And my next book is called Faith After Doubt, and the book after that will be called Do I Stay Christian? So you know, these are things that I've been thinking about in in my sleep. Uh, for, we thought you might be, yeah, from knowing what books are coming yeah. out. So, yeah, <laughs> and you know, faith has many different meanings, uh, and and I think that's where we have to start. It means a lot of different things, but unfortunately, in uh, modern Western Christianity, and especially white Protestant Christianity. Faith means belief for a lot of people. To say I have faith means I hold to a set of beliefs, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think one of our one of the great needs for us is to to disentangle those two words and let them mean something uh, different again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of our great struggles right now is faith gets caught in between two different communities. One is the community of religious people who want to define it as beliefs, and the other is the community of kind of maybe scientific and you know rational people who want to define it as irrationality mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, something that is sort of beneath them. And so I think one of our struggles is to redefine and rediscover and rearticulate and represent faith as something other than what both of those groups uh, understand it to be. You know, in, in the research I've been doing for this book, I, I came across a really interesting definition of faith from Alan Watts, who back in the 60s, he was the big scholar of Eastern religion. He defined faith as unconditional openness to the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that way, suddenly faith becomes related to doubt because faith is the commitment to pursue the truth beyond what you currently think. Uh, and I, I just think there's something very mm-hmm. beautiful and powerful there. Excellent. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Penny? Wow, I'm just chewing on that. I, mm-hmm. what is that? Unconditional openness. To the truth. To where, the truth. Where, yeah, a commitment to follow the truth wherever it right. leads you. Right. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone said that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite yeah. opposite of faith. And for me, doubt and and faith are 
are so intertwined. I think faith and belief for me are, is what really captures my attention. Because like Brian, I think it has come to believe uh, intellectual assent, which is I don't think in the Gospels, and when Jesus talked about faith, that's what was meant at all. I think it was a commitment to a way of life, a commitment to a relationship. You know, Marcus Borg talks about um, it's more important to belong than to believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the belongingness to that divine love, to that divine grace and spirit and that sense that you are not alone, that there is something greater than yourself, that is far more important than an intellectual assent to a list, right, of whatever that means. And I'm also, as you both know, fascinated in the question, can I still be a Christian? And that one's really up for grabs. You know, so long ago, Bonhoeffer prophesied, predicted that we would uh, have a religionless Christianity. So I've been thinking about what that means Mm. in this day and age. And also, you know, in Judaism, there's secular Judaism. So, you know, I'm wondering what what I would really like to work on in the future is, you know, is there such a thing as secular Christianity? And what what would that look like? Can I, even in this moment, when I say I'm a non-credal or a post-credal person situated in the Christian tradition, I'll say it that way, (laughs) can I be, still be a Christian and say I'm non-credal? That's a question. I know in my own heart, but how other people would answer that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's when you think, can I be a Christian? Well, it just depends on who you ask. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> the irony is, you know, for those of us who grew up Protestant, we're having these big arguments about who's a Christian. Meanwhile, our Catholic friends say, well, you know, before Vatican II, we would have said you weren't. Right. And the fact is, I have some Eastern Orthodox friends who actually don't think I'm a, a real Christian in the in the way that counts the most. So it sort of depends on who you ask, you know, and they all have their different authority structures, which comes to another definition of faith, because I think functionally, what faith means for a lot of people is it's a tribal identifier. When you say I'm of Christian faith or Jewish faith or Hindu faith or whatever, what it really means is I belong to a community of people with a certain heritage, submission to certain authority figures, uh, reverence for certain texts, and I think that's in many ways how a person could say, well, look, I'm a Jew and I'm an atheist. I'm a Jew and I have no beliefs that – like everything in the Jewish tradition, I don't believe any of it's true. But I'm part of this heritage and that's still accurate for me. So this is where that word faith, you know, has yeah. got so many different things going on. And it's true. I mean, secular Jews would would tell you – I had this fascinating lecture in Israel about secular Judaism, and I was just riveted the whole time. And I finally thought, like, I get it. I get it. So at the end, you know, obviously said, are there questions? So I'm like, well, then, you know, what do you, you know, describe your relationship to your sacred texts? And he's like, oh, they're super important. Yeah, we go back to those. Those are our sacred texts. And I'm like, I thought you were a secular Jew. <laughs> like, how can you? But then it's it's holding that, yes. right? Holding that heritage, holding that sense of tribe and community and but then that in itself comes with a host of complications and um can i throw in one other curve please yes. yes so i think something's happening around the world right now where enough people 
are moving towards some kind of contemplative, post-dual consciousness, uh, mystical, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, self-critical approach to their faith where something happens. And I guess I can speak from my own experience in this. I don't feel like it's like what you said before, you feel like your faith is stronger. Like, I feel like my faith has taken me, my Christian faith has provided me the resources to reach a place where I really don't care if you call me a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. it's not because I don't, it's because I actually think that's kind of what Jesus was getting at. I kind of think it's what Paul was getting at. And I think that's the direction my sincere pursuit of my faith led me to a place where I don't care what you call me. Uh, uh, there's a place, you know, I think it's in First Corinthians, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, you know. I am what I am, whatever you want to call me. Uh, and then he says something like, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> I am what I am. So, and, yeah, go can ahead. I just respond Please. to that one thing? Because I was really grappling with this, and I was in deep conversation with a, a beloved friend, and in a, in a very tearful way, I said, I, I don't know that I can identify as a Christian anymore. I just, because everything that's going on in the country, and I named some things, which the details aren't important now. And and then I described it to him. And at at the end of it, he said, I think that might be the most Christian thing I've yes. ever heard. Yes. So yes. it's exactly what you're saying. Yes. I mean, you just said it in a beautiful and articulate way. And that's that's what I'm coming to. Like, you know, and I was doing this journaling when I was in Northern Ireland, a bit of go with your friend, Gareth. Higgins. Oh, fantastic. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and, um, and John Deere was there. Oh, and um, Two dear he, friends. He, uh, John said, you know, he really challenged us to have a, a journaling, a conversation with Jesus. And I was a little reticent to do that. I'm like, yeah, I haven't done that for a while. And and um, so, but I did. And I was like, I don't know where I'm being led, what I'm doing. And like, and then Jesus kind of responded in my journal saying, you know, you don't, you don't need to defend me. And you don't even, I don't care what you call yourself, you know. Do what you're called to do and do it with grace and mercy and compassion and love and fierceness. And that it's, I think it's exactly what you've come to as well in a a particular kind of way. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful to think about it that way. And it makes me wonder about our attachment to these identifiers like Christian, where does that attachment come, come from? And then also like, what do you do with Jesus? If you're not, if you're not Christian, and I'd love, I'd love to hear both of you respond to that. I'd be glad to go first on that, uh, building off uh, something you just said. You know, uh, the brand of fundamentalism I grew up with was non-creedal, um, and part of the reason why was because if you had a creed, then you're saying less than the Bible, and we believed every single thing in the Bible, uh, especially the Schofield reference notes. But right. that's, an <laughs> that's an inside joke that some people will get. That's what we grew up on, <laughs> but. And and it's funny, I was just talking about this at a church this morning. You know, in the Apostles' Creed, there's something people sort of jokingly or critically call the great comma. Um, And it is that the entire life of Jesus, everything Jesus said and taught, 
is contained in a comma between born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so Jesus' teaching, and he's, you know, according to the Gospels, Jesus was pretty interested in his teaching. He took it pretty seriously. The one place where he says, this is the reason I've came, I've come to teach, you know. So his teaching becomes almost irrelevant, you know, in classic Christology. Yeah, right. His teaching is yeah. really unimportant. Right. So the thing I have to say at this stage of my life, if I were to write a creed, one of the, the like, I'm not saying anybody else should agree with this, but one of the things I would like to say in my creed is he was really smart. <laughs> like I, when, you know, and I know all the questions we have about textual criticism and all the rest, but whatever substantial human being could be behind this collection of stories. I mean, I, I've just, uh, I probably the, grappled with the gospel of Luke mm -hmm. uh, deeper than anything, mm -hmm. any other single text in the Bible. And the brilliance and the, mm -hmm. the like the political insight. Like, I feel like as I become a student of Jesus, you just see through Donald Trump in a second. And not only do you see through him, but you pity him. You have compassion on him. You, you know, and you can be furious with him and you want to turn his tables of his temple upside down. But you also just see this poor, pathetic man as part of a system that creates poor, mm -hmm. pathetic human beings. And, and this poor person who's been impoverished by his wealth. And I, I mean, you just put it all together and you think, I, I see that because of Jesus, right? So I find myself, I love Jesus. I love Jesus way more than I did when I was a lot more worried about arguing about all kinds of statements about, uh, about Jesus. I also feel like the example that Jesus set of loving the people you're not supposed to love and confronting the people you're not supposed to confront. You just put all that together. And I think, yeah, I, I need a good dose of that. Mm -hmm. So, but here's the irony that has so little to do with what's associated with the word Christian in today's world that right. that paradox makes me completely understand. Like I have no judgment of people who say, I want nothing to do with that religion because I can see why, you know. Yeah. I can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like a big embarrassment right. that I have to be associated with. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much where Brian is, I think, um, a revolutionary prophet that, that I want to follow. And they're life-changing. They provide a needed corrective in my own life again and again. So a real, a real example, a model. Um, I still do wake up each day, you know with a blueprint that's pretty deeply impacted by the teachings of Jesus. And I don't, whatever I do or don't call myself, I don't, I don't see that changing because it just makes me such a better human being in the world. Mm -hmm. So in, in your, the stories of your, your arc, a couple of things that both of you lifted up was, was an appreciation for having some pretty strong biblical literacy. You knew the Bible at a young age, which gives you some fluency. Um, one of the things we talk about in sort of this post-evangelical work is we're bilingual. You know, we can we can speak yeah. fundamentalist. Yes. Um, so there's there's that, and and then also knowing people that were good people. Uh, Brian, I think your words were something akin to you know your parents were much nicer people than their theology, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, I think we can probably all relate to that. So these things that you talk about looking back that you're bringing forward with a lot of fondness and warmth is beautiful and I, th I think um, helps anyone on the journey. 
But in addition to that, what are things that you look back on, you reflect back on that you've pulled forward with great meaning that surprised you? Can, can I tell you one that just is kind of recent? You know, I think any responsible person who doesn't want to be dangerous, uh, doesn't want to be a danger to themselves and others, they have to disarm the idea of an angry God, right? They have to disarm this wrathful God who can't be happy unless somebody suffers, you know? But I feel like lately I am re-engaging with that mm -hmm. idea mm -hmm. in this way. I, I think the biblical literacy that my reading of the Bible led me to is to say even places that I don't think are, let's say, historically or factually or scientifically accurate, they are human expressions of encountering reality in a meaningful way. So right now we're in an environmental crisis. And if we don't learn to live within the limits of a creature in an environment, if we continue living out of sync with the laws of nature, the laws of ecology, then we're going to discover the wrath of planet Earth. Um, because when you don't live in sync, you uh, end up experiencing environmental, you know, climate breakdown, you, you impoverish your soils, you're going to be hungry, your crops will stop producing, um, you rich people exploit poor, poor people, and poor people will not just sit on the other side of their wall and die. Um, they will find a way around your wall and your life will be worse than it would have been if you would have shared with them before, right? So all of these things that are attributed to the wrath of God, I think now I look and say, I, I, for a while I would have just been happy to say, yeah, that's all mythology. Let's get rid of that. But now I want to go back and say, but you know what? There's an insight there that we desperately need right now. And I mean, can I tell you what's so bizarre? Like I look at those first few chapters of Genesis, which we all heard all kinds of arguments about taking literally, blah, blah, blah. You sort of could imagine a story that goes something like this. Naked hunter-gatherers living in a garden um, are told – you can be part of this garden and enjoy the tree of life for uncounted generations if you will just live within your environmental limits. But if you make choices to live outside of your environmental mm -hmm. limits, you're going to find out what evil is. Yeah. Now, suddenly that story comes back yeah. and it's almost literal, right? Mm, right. Uh, yeah. And then you think, what happens next? Warfare between the pastoralists and the right. agriculturalists. Yeah. Then what happens next? Uh, the agriculturalists win and they build cities and they start trading and they build an economy that becomes so oppressive and evil that you get sea level rise and a flood story. I mean, it's, it's almost spooky with how the book of Genesis becomes an environmental tract to tell us you better get back. If you want to get back to the garden, you got to figure out how to live within your environmental limits. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Yeah. Holy shit. That's like really messing with my head. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. I need to just like. I love that though. Yeah. You know, really good. To, to revisit something that I've worked really hard at distancing myself from mm -hmm. only to face it in that through through that those words and go, holy moly, there's something still there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, and you know what I can imagine? I can imagine ancient agricultural people preserving some of those memories and that actually being almost you don't have to have anything supernatural or you can have something supernatural if you want but just on the level of 
the deepest wisdom of a culture would remember, you know, we used to be naked hunter gatherers Mm -hmm. and, and some of them still exist. We see them, you know, sometimes and they know something we lost and they Mm -hmm. have something we don't have. And you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? There's just Mm -hmm. wisdom. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But you, Penny, what surprises you? Um, I think what surprises me is how the centrality of the cross uh, goes in and out of my theology, <laughs> you know, where, you know, I really embrace it for a time and then I'm just like, no, I can't do that. And then, so just, um, I think it's returning a, a little bit now to, I want to unpack it a little more at a, in a different way than I have. It could be just because I'm parenting a teenager, so I <laughs> got the bearing my cross in this moment of suffering and uh, how to figure out how to not mm-hmm. let her be crucified by the world in yeah. different ways. Yeah. So I, I think I'm still being surprised by that. Mm-hmm. The cross. The cross. Yeah. Don't make me talk about it too yeah. much, but yeah. But you know, yeah. you make a connection between those two things. You think a lot of us with con- rather Catholic, Protestant, whatever conservative backgrounds, uh, we saw the threat of violence and we saw violence used as a fear tactic to intimidate and to make you feel guilty and ashamed. And uh, we saw it used in ways that now feel so harmful and so abusive. And then we rightly reject that. We rightly push that away. We we don't want to be part of that anymore. But then uh, eventually we start seeing yeah, but you know what? There really is suffering in life and there really is danger in life and there really are consequences in life and there really are decisions that can bring so much horror and pain. And yeah, and we keep, and and both of those things are in the narrative that I think are there for a good reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you find anything in the narrative? I love how you brought the Genesis text and really relate <laughs> it to our current situation on the planet. Anything that speaks to the future of American Christianity? Mm-hmm. Where do both of you who have been riding this way for a while, observing things along the way, integrating things along the way into your own personal journeys, where do you see the future? A couple of years ago, I got asked to speak to the World Future Society, and I realized I'd I had read a lot of futurists, but I didn't really understand their methodology. So I had to do some research. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of futurists would say is that we don't make predictions, but we create scenarios. Right. And, and very often they create a, a likely, a, an extension of current trend scenario. And then they create a scenario, uh, one or more scenarios where things could go better than that. And then they create one or more scenarios where things would go worse than that. And that's kind of how I, when I think of your question, I think all three of those possible scenarios will be true. I think the likely trend scenario is that institutional Christianity will continue to shrink and wrinkle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It'll get older and smaller. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. And I think that's going to happen to conservatives, liberals. I think Mm -hmm. that there's going to be a dimension of that that just happens, right? I think the, Worst case scenario will happen. I think there will be a resurgence of white supremacist, white nationalist Christianity. I think it will find ways 
to create alliances with non-white people who are willing to make an alliance Mm. with white supremacist Christianity if they get patriarchy and money and perks from white supremacist Christianity, because that's how white supremacy works. It makes deals. So I think something super ugly is already happening, and I think it's not going to go away. Even And I think, to me, the repulsive, disgusting, let me use a word, deplorable, uh, <laughs> alliance of Franklin Graham and Robert Jefferson, yeah, right. Tony Perkins, and these people with Donald Trump. It, it's just so obviously sycophantic. And even if Trump loses, those people are still our neighbors, yes. and they and it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. And they've got to figure out what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the rest of us have to forgive. We have to make room for welcoming them back into the larger human community. I don't think the older generation, many of them will switch sides. I think they've been brainwashed almost. It's like a cult and they're members of the cult and not many people leave cults, mm-hmm. um, but their children might. And that's, right. we have to, but some of them will, and we've got to make room. But I think the, I think that the people who are profiting psychologically and mm-hmm. financially uh, and professionally off of this racist uh, religious movement will continue to do so. And then I think there's a better case scenario. And and here's the irony. I think podcasts are playing a big part mm-hmm. in that better case scenario. Yeah. Through conversations like this, making things that nobody could say, uh, creating spaces exactly. where they can be said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hear that from people, you know, who are listening that people from all over the world, you know, listening to conversations like this and are beginning to wonder. It's a safe place to wonder yeah. about your own faith and doubts yeah. and beliefs um, and then interact in a social media sort of way, which is a little bit anonymous, you know, You can, and I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's like, I've heard some people call it like the church outside of the church. Yeah. Which, you know. Which in an interesting way for Protestants is probably how Catholics could have looked at the mm-hmm. Lutherans and the Anabaptists right. and all the right. rest, you know. They're not really part of the church anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The true historic church. Because in that era, Christianity was defined less by beliefs and more by belonging to the right hierarchy. Yeah. What do you see in your crystal ball, Penny? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, you know, Phyllis Tickle, when she talks about emerging Christianity, says about every 500 years that the church has a giant rummage sale, mm-hmm. right? And um, on my on my good days, I think that we're in the midst of a uh, pretty cosmic rummage sale. And on my good days, I feel like something really wonderful could emerge. Something is being birthed, and that's why we're in such birth pangs right now, why things are so messy, so painful. So, And I think Brian is right that at the crux of it all in terms of the Christian tradition in America, its link with white supremacy is mm-hmm. what will, if enough people are willing to break with that and deal with it, something really wonderful can emerge. If not, I think it will be uh, even more deeply entrenched than we can imagine and will destroy any good that Christianity is 
because the sellout will be so profound. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's right. I do think that uh, Brian is absolutely right. You know, Bob Johansson works for the the Institute for the Future, and uh, we've had many conversations, and and that's exactly right. It's they don't make predictions; they they do talk about scenarios and how everything is volatile. And um, and he, you know, he one of his early books was called "Get There Early," uh, which the church has not done. <laughs> so I think in general, the Church of the Capital C is so constantly just trying to catch up mm-hmm. that most of the time we're left behind. And, you know, as insiders that many of us are in the room that, you know, we're interested in this conversation, but the larger population, in my view, could care less if the church gets there or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I said something in a, a sermon a few weeks ago, and I, I mean, I said it to provoke for sure, lovingly, of course, but um, <laughs> to provoke nonetheless. But I was talking about Woodstock was a 50th anniversary. It shaped, it mm-hmm. shifted, right? And so I said, you know, what what is comparable to that today? What's what's a what's a Woodstock moment look like? And then I said, you know, in terms of movements and everything, and I said, you know, the church we've missed that boat to lead it. Mm. We just we need to find the right partners and partner with it and. I got pushback about that. What do you wow. mean? You know, yeah. the church can't. Really? Have you given up on the church? I said, well, show me, show it to me differently. I mean, a number of people really were engaged in the question, but that's the pushback I got. They were just, people had even written it down in their bulletins. Wow. Like basically, you know, Penny said, the ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so. Yeah. Wow. As an institution. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I I love that illustration of the rummage sale. I think we're in the middle of it, and uh, yeah, we come across stuff and we go, "Hmm, this is really meaningful." I'm going to hang on to it, and then there's a lot of other stuff we're going. Well, maybe somebody else can use it. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of people. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but roughly in our age group, who we've spent our professional lives yes. trying to salvage this. Yes, thing. right. And yeah, and there's a huge amount of grief, yeah, you know, because we've worked hard, and sometimes there's shame, like mm-hmm. we failed. The thing's going to sink on our watch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but every once in a while, lately, I get this wave come over me. I'm so glad we didn't succeed, because if we had succeeded, we would have kept way too many of those white supremacist germs in the thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. purged enough, and and it wasn't that it, it was just. It takes time for these things to be exposed, and it takes time for human beings to see our own things that we're in denial about and all the rest. So, like, I'm really glad we haven't succeeded in in turning this mm-hmm. thing around mm-hmm. in the sense of keeping the institution alive until we've put enough stuff out at the curb. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. And there's keeping things from meaning, but they may not be useful. Yeah. Mm. So, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They might yeah. not be useful That's a great point. at yeah. all. Sentimental value. Sentimental mm-hmm. value. They hold a memory, mm-hmm. like hymns. If you grew up with them, they hold a memory. You're going to get in big trouble now. I'm going to get in big trouble. <laughs> you know, and I happen to like some of the hymns. They hold memories. But most of the theological content is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. If you really read it, and we're trying to use a lot of new words, and then people complain, you know, and you're using new words, right. to, you know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, hum it, I don't care, but you know, yeah, but so 
they hold meaning because they hold mm-hmm. memory, but are they useful? Is, is that sort of what you mean by secular Christianity? Because I'm, I'm curious about that. How, secular Christianity is that? Well, there's there's another episode, so we've yeah, got Penny but, Part One and Part Two. <laughs> if you have any but, thoughts on yeah, that right now that absolutely. you'd like to share, either of you, both of you, like what what do we what do you mean by that? Because I'm thinking about American Christianity in the future, and I'm wondering if there's a space for secular Christianity in, in the American landscape and what that might look like. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I think people would be so like, you know, aghast mm-hmm. or you know, just like. How could you put those two words together? Because, you know, especially evangelical Christianity has been the, you know, the nemesis, right? Has been humanism and, you know, secularity or secularism. But just like there are atheist Jews who the tradition may hold some real meaning, even though there's no really belief in it. You know, can you be an atheist Christian? I mean, Greta, um, Vosper? Vosberg. Yeah, Vosper. You know, she's an atheist mm-hmm. pastor. Right. I had somebody the other night um, say, we had an event here on uh, residential segregation. I had somebody the other night say, after it, say, you know, I really want to come to your church, but, you know, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, you're not alone. <laughs> and she was shocked, you know, that I wasn't going to stand there and try to convince her. I said, you're not alone. There's a number of people here who have no idea what they believe about God. Come on. You know, I think it's the God question. I think it's the belief question. So I think there could absolutely, I think it's what Bonhoeffer was getting at with a religionless Christianity. So maybe, maybe that's not the right descriptor. I don't know, but it's fun to play with. That's for sure. Yeah. Thoughts, Brian? Oh, man. Well, this is such a important, <laughs> interesting discussion. So, uh, you know, it just, I totally forgot about this, but I got contacted a couple of years ago. Somebody was writing his PhD dissertation on my writing, and um, he must have dropped out because I never heard from him again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe uh, he may be still at it. But he was taking the work of Charles Taylor, who wrote this monumental book called A Secular Age. Mm-hmm. And he was writing about my work and defining me as a secular Christian. Oh, wow. now, but what he meant by that was this. Uh, and I, I'm not an expert in Charles T- Taylor. I read part of A Secular Age, but it's like, I don't know, you know, it's it's like inches thick. But Taylor uses this word imaginary. He doesn't mean make-believe. He means the collection of images by which you understand the world. It's, it's, your, uh, it's your repertoire of images to understand the world. You could say the way he defines that uh, secular as when religious images no longer are the ways that you see the world, right? And and the the religious imagery of the past comes from a different universe. It comes from a universe where there are angels flying up right, and down, right. where God is mm-hmm. up, we're down. It, it's a universe that's maximum 10,000 years old. It's a, it's a universe that inhabited 10 concentric crystal spheres. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but C.S. Lewis wrote a book about this called The Discarded Image. And he was saying the old imagery, uh, uh, he, he was saying the religious imaginary doesn't work anymore. And so, Part of what we're grappling with is what does it mean to believe – what does it mean to have faith in, when you live in a 14-billion-year-old universe, when you live in a universe where evolution 
is an adequate explanation for life when you know and so on and so on in a universe where we understand our brain as this modular evolutionary uh result that has all these different component parts working together and we don't know what consciousness is we've got all kinds of theories but we're we're trying to grapple with what but one thing we know it isn't it isn't that this little vapor uh, called spirit enters a fertilized egg right all of that is uh, in fact we got to realize that for a whole lot of people, they didn't even believe in the egg. <laughs> they they believed that the sperm was the living thing that implanted, you know, and that anyhow, all, uh, a whole different universe. And in this universe, all of our co- imagery content for God doesn't work. So when people say that they're atheists, if what they're saying is the old that's right imagery doesn't right. work anymore. Yeah, it doesn't right. for a whole lot of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the question. I don't even think if we know if there can be a resurrection of God in the new uh, in the new universe, because whenever we use the word, we bring in the old exactly. imagery. That's right. And, and that's, to me, the foment of this moment. I think there's a certain sense all of us are atheists and all of us are agnostics and all of us are believers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Rachel Held Evans, who just died, mm-hmm. uh, uh, she's such a beautiful person. But she used to say, uh, how did she say it? Uh, in the parts of a day when I believe. Right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> because we're all yes. living in this. Right. Uh, and and I think part of what maybe we can do, and part of what a term like religionless Christianity maybe helps us do, or secular Christianity, is help us say, we're all in this mess. We are. And my guess is that nine out of 10 fundamentalist preachers are too. They just mm-hmm. can't admit it. Uh, mm-hmm. A quick story. They can't get to it. I, I, Internally. I had a, I had a guy, uh, I, I had a guy, I was speaking at this event, and it was at a, a religious college. And so it was mostly students, but this older guy comes. And when they open up the mic for questions, he's the first guy down at the mic. And he's like shaking. How do you even call yourself a Christian? Who gives you the authority to make up your own religion and call it Christianity? And he's like shaking, right? And so I tried to respond as politely as I could. It was obvious he had a lot of emotion. So at the end, when it's all over, he comes rushing up to me and gets in my face and says, I'd like your email address. And, you know, I don't give my email address to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but something just flicked me in the head and said, give it to him. So I gave it to him. And I'm not kidding. Like within 24 hours, I have an email. I'm the fellow who asked, I'm the man who asked you that question. What do you, and, and I'm sorry if I was rude. What do you say to a pastor who is losing his faith? I am that pastor. Wow. And so the rage Mm -hmm. at me was the rage in his own self about his own doubts and questions, Mm -hmm. you know. I think that's more common than people Mm -hmm. realize. I I think you're absolutely right. Well, we we have a few minutes left in our time together. And one of the things we do at Arenacast is we, you know, we talk about pretty serious things. But when we have guests and and we ourselves, we try to, to not just be minds and voices, but round out in a less than serious way, kind of our personhood. So th- these are these are maybe some hot button issues and, and pushing <laughs> some stereotypes. So take no offense. It's just for the purpose of pushing it. And I have one for each of you. So I'll start with Brian and then 
we'll 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 kind of close with with Penny. So Brian, I learned uh, in in you know long ago that you're also a Maryland boy. Yeah. Um, I grew up in, in Maryland. We we just before the recording talked about some of our we went to the same Toys R Us. That's right. As kids. I mean, We're how awesome cousins. is that? Right. <laughs> so that's cool. But growing up in that area, my family being an immigrant family, one of the ways we attached to the American culture was through sports and football in particular in my house was a big deal. And we were my dad and I were diehard Washington Redskins fans. And then over time. The consciousness about the name, the mascot, got to us, and then I moved to California. And it's been, it's been this strange and very emotional struggle. Um, and I'm wondering. I mean, it, it it sounds like a silly thing, but it's a big deal because it's a very derogatory term. But yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the sport is what it is. The team means what it means to that group of people. And any, do you have a similar relationship with? DC football or <laughs> so, is it just not a thing for you? No, I grew up and the Redskins were our team. And I, I just have to be honest, I still love sports, but I haven't kept up with sports in so many years. I just like another year goes by, I say, oh, hold it. World Series is about to happen. <laughs> I, I haven't paid attention to one stinking game in the entire <laughs> baseball season. Like I just, I'm yeah. into other things, you know? Yeah. So I've lost, I've lost interest, but I do think it just is disgusting to me the the name is and the callousness of people mm-hmm. who aren't willing to change their name and the absolute disrespect to the native peoples and of course i don't you know people will be listening to this all different times but isn't tomorrow the holiday formerly mm-hmm. known as columbus day mm-hmm. and you know i'm so grateful that a lot of people are re- yes. renaming it as yes. indigenous peoples day or whatever yep. because it once you learn you know, you think to call a team Redskins and to have a holiday that you celebrate Columbus who talk about a racist bigot. And a lot of people don't know he was a pimp. He was he was a child sex trafficker. Yeah. Mm. Uh, people don't know this about right. it, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. That, is, <laughs> that was supposed to be on a light note. You know? <laughs> that was like, uh, That's OK, but it helps us. Get a, a fuller picture of your passion <laughs> around different things. Yeah, it's a struggle. I went to a, a museum in South Dakota that's run entirely by Native people, funded by Native people. And the last exhibit, the last exhibit was titled, We Are Not a Mascot. Oh, great. And the primary mascot was my beloved NFL team. And it was in that moment, I remember standing there going, I can't do that anymore. I, I can't in good conscience I mean, and it's it's a big deal. I mean, it sounds weird, but it was a big part of my American experience was to be a football fan. It was a way to be accepted. So to then have to say this beloved football team is no longer okay. Well, can I just say too, you, you know, having an immigrant background, it's almost like suddenly you enter into other people's story. And I, I mean, I'm not in any way trying to get myself as a white man off the hook. But, you know, when you're born, you have no idea what you're born into. And every, you know, every white kid waking who goes, uh, grows up in America eventually finds out, oh, I'm white. I, like, I didn't know. And oh, my, you know, people of my heritage, this is what happened. It's all, I think we're all in this sense, especially for things that happened before we're born. We wake up and we realize, oh, there was other stories going on before I came along. And now I'm part of those stories, like, like it or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to like football. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so Penny, 
sticking with the sports theme. Oh, great. You <laughs> talked about uh, coming out as lesbian. And mm. we know each other. We're like, we're close. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw this out there tongue in cheek. <laughs> do all lesbians play softball? No, they do not. <laughs> I was on a team and I can tell you that some lesbians do not play softball. <laughs> because we let everybody on the team and we lost. Anyway, um, no. <laughs> but it's a great game. But but in general, there is this stereotype, not only of softball, but in general, that lesbians are into sports. Mm-hmm. And speak to that a little bit. How has that kind of been part of your experience, both as maybe a, a participant, but then also as as a leader? You know, I, I think identity stereotypes, identity, uh, for, particularly for the LGBT people at a certain time in history was so important you had to establish yourself in in a, in a way, um, but you know that uh, you know the world has changed so much that my like gaydar is it's so off now for the most part because I can't tell like yeah who's who anymore yeah like it's it's really upset my world because I had really great gaydar, but um, you know I think obviously there's there's lesbians of every type. I mean. Do most of the lesbians that I hang out with, are most of them sporty or have they been? Yes. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And for me, I mean, I never met a sport I didn't like for sure. And for me, because there was no option to, to channel my sexuality, that's a really effective outlet when – you know, you you don't have any options, and you certainly don't want to do the boy thing. Uh, so it was really important. Sports, music, church. I mean, that I I didn't have time for anything else, and and have time to get into too much trouble around my sexuality, or even think about it very much because uh, of my religious upbringing. Mm. Thanks for asking a tact, answering a tactless question <laughs> yeah. with so much. With so yeah. much grace, but um, and thank you both. I, this has been—I don't know—I'm I, I, overwhelmed with gratitude at getting to hear what you shared, and I look forward to listening to this over and over because there's, you know, a lot of gems that you dropped seeds mm-hmm. that are rich with potential, and I look forward to the mm-hmm. growth that they have in me and my experience, mm-hmm. and the possibilities that both of you see. In, in, you know, like the, the way that you see what's ahead and, um, how inspiring that is and also daunting. You know, there's work to do. There's work to do. There's people to love and forgive. And there's, uh, places to go <laughs> with this thing we call faith, doubt, belief. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.